This is Nomina's Mental Health Mavens, where each week we bring you guests from the mental health, addictions, and holistic care community to talk about different issues and treatment modalities. Now, guests' opinions are their own, and some content may be triggering. With that, today's guest is Dan Kalko, Clinical Director of Nomina Integrated Health, who is here to talk with us about family dynamics in the addiction and recovery process. If you're a subscriber, you know that I am a sober woman and I know that I will probably always feel like the screw up in my family, despite how long I've been sober. I also know that many of my family sometimes still sees me as the screw up of the family. So let's welcome Dan, who will share his expertise on this very topic. Welcome back, Dan. I'm very excited about this one because uh, I've gone through addiction and I had family dynamics. <laughs> so yes. I'm, ho- I'm hoping to take people through kind of the the still inactive addiction phase. You know, what's happening with the family, children. I think we should talk about that. And then I'm also hoping we can go through the treatment phase and then the sure. sober phase and give everybody some tips um, from both sides, both sides of the story would be nice because, um, as I said in the intro, I'm always going to feel like the screw up of the family. <laughs> and then my family is, is they still look at me, uh, you know, a little bit sideways, wondering when is she going to fall off the rails again? So what yeah. are some of the dynamics that can play into, into the family and what's the most common things you see? I think you touched on a couple of really good points is that when people finally go to seek help there's been a long history uh, with that relational dynamics that you, you spoke about and so when we look at data and the our brain is a data miner it likes to collect data and what our brain is looking at if we're maybe the parent or the loved one of somebody who's been struggling with substance abuse or addiction is that the amount of time that they have not in addiction is less than the amount of time the brain has evidence to point back at and say look at all of this time where it didn't go well look at all this time where they did struggle and that's where you talked about that like almost like waiting for the other shoe to drop piece is is our brain hasn't yet been balanced in terms of how much evidence we have to show that we are maybe doing better we are doing well we have adapted we have learned we have grown um, and that takes a while and some people some some parents some loved ones struggle with the their loved one or their child or their parent with addiction for decades. So that's a lot of data that we have to get over, get over, so to speak, or balance out with other data that shows them that it's the opposite. And that's why I tell a lot of people that it's never going to be right away. Yeah, everyone comes back from rehab. Everybody comes back after having done an ayahuasca ceremony or whatever it ends up being, and everybody feels better. And that's true. People do feel better. The people that have been struggling They feel like they've turned a new leaf. There's a new chapter. Their brain has rewired itself. But our families have a different perspective. And we have to honor that perspective and give them time and space in order to be able to adapt back to what we see ourselves as or or that ideal that we try to strive for. Yeah. Well, I know that when you enter into the recovery process, that quite often family programs are highly encouraged so that... The family can get some psychoeducational support. They can learn about boundaries. Um, They they can get the resources they need to help them also make a shift in thinking. 
For sure. And we highly encourage people to either attend our family program or any family program, because like you said, you're going to get something out of each program. And we want to make sure that the support that the person is going back to understand all of the new things that have happened to this this person's behavioral cycle, this personality, this person's personality, uh, the neural pathways, the chemical reset that's going on inside people's brains. There's a lot going on inside people's brains that they don't know because it's very specific information that needs to be given to them by somebody unless they seek it out themselves. And sometimes it's hard to figure out what to put in that Google search bar. Yeah. So what are the most common patterns that you see if there is a family member that's struggling with a, with someone with an addiction? What do you see most and what would you suggest? So in terms of somebody who is in active addiction, I think setting really strong, healthy boundaries is important. Oftentimes, they're beca- they're, there's an unhealthy dynamic that develops between the person that's struggling with the substance abuse or the addiction and the family members in a way that we love our family members, right? We want to support them. Sometimes we need to not support them in the ways that we have been so that we can support them in their recovery, in their sobriety. And sometimes that means stopping giving them money. Sometimes that means setting a boundary and saying, no, I can't come pick you up. No, I can't let you stay here. No, I can't. That protects yourself, the person that's trying to help the loved one, um, but also protects the other person because if nothing changes, nothing changes, as you've heard and has said so often in recovery circles, and somebody needs to make that change. And if it's the person, the the health, let's say, call them the healthy person, the support person that has the loved one that's struggling, sometimes they're the last connection they have. Everybody else has severed their connections. Everybody else has put in their boundaries. But as long as one person is feeding into that cycle, that cycle will continue. And we need that cycle to stop. And sometimes the hard thing to do is to say, I'm sorry, I can't do this anymore. I'm putting up a boundary that says, as long as you're doing whatever it is that you're doing, we can't do this anymore. But when you stop, or if you want to stop, I'm here for you, right? We don't want to close the door completely. We want to say, I'm closing the door now because I can't handle this. I see how much it's hurting you, but it's also hurting me. When you're ready to come and help yourself, I will be here to help you help yourself. That's the message that we always want to give to people that suffer with addiction. Because sometimes they will go until their last relationship is is strained. And then that's when people hit their rock bottom, right? Everybody has a different rock bottom. And when they have nowhere to turn to, sometimes that's the motivating factor that's required in order to get them to seek the help that they want for themselves. We want our, we want our, our loved ones to change all the time, um, but we can't want it more than they want it. It doesn't work if, if we want it more than they want it. Yeah, yeah, it's heartbreaking. I mean, I, I've seen enabling seems to be the hardest thing for a support person to deal with just from what I've seen. I know myself, I went through it where I had to detach with love and just say, no, baby, I can't, but I'll be here for you when, when you figure this one out. Yeah. And it was tough. It it seems counterintuitive to say that I will not help you because as parents, as husbands, as wives, as partners, as boyfriend, whatever the relationship dynamic is, there's this intrinsic kind of helping that's part of any relationship and it's hard to reframe that helping as 
enabling, like you said, enabling the addiction, enabling the behavioral pattern that we don't want to do because it is, it's not saying no, it's saying you could say verbally, I don't agree with this. I need, uh, you need to stop. But when you give them money or when you give them support or when you give them whatever it ends up being, that subconsciously is telling them that you're still there and that their behavior is okay because that avenue is still open. So that avenue for resources, that avenue for affection, that avenue for attention is still open. Regardless of what's being said verbally, it's still open. Until that is severed and shut off completely, that's when the subconscious goes, whoa, I have, I don't have this anymore, right? There's no manipulating my way into getting more cash or uh, another car or whatever that thing is or that attention even. Even attention is the currency. And when that is totally shut, the subconscious doesn't know what to do. It'll turn to others. When there's no others, then that's when the person needs to think about, am I willing to change my behavior because it's hurting me? We talked about stages of change, you and I, or, or I did a video on stages of change. And um, you got to get past that pre-contemplative stage in order to make sure that the person intrinsically wants to change because they have no relationship. They have no currency. They have no avenues for anything because it is their behavior that has harmed all of those things. It's the hardest part. It's the hardest part. Yeah. So what are some resources then? You have a loved one, they're struggling. What's the next steps? So again, we can't want it more than they do, but being open and honest with our, our loved one or our, our support person, that's the, the main thing is go to be able to say, these are the ways that your behavior is harming me and I'm going to need to protect myself here if you don't get help, right? If you don't help yourself, I'm not going to be able to help you anymore. I'm clearly not able to help you now. We can work together to get help, but I can't do this for you. I can't do this on your behalf. And this is what's going to be like. And I would I would always recommend not making it a, a, a sharp cutoff, right? Out of the blue, don't be like you're cut off, right? That's never a good way because then that feeling of shame and guilt and, and the cycle of being... Um, uh, left on your own can be very impactful. It's gotta be a conversation. Hey, I'm willing to do this for you, but you need to you need to show me you're meeting there. Hey, you didn't meet me there. If you do this again, I'm not gonna have, okay, I told you three times already, this is the way that things are going. So it's not out of left field, right? I'm closing the door to protect myself. We've been trying this for six weeks, six months, a year, whatever your, your time is, really seeing how these are the consequences of the action. This is the thing that is happening right now. And it's going to happen. And and sticking firm to it is hard too, right? Saying, I'm not going to pick up that phone when you see that that phone call on the caller ID or the 177th text message that says they're sleeping on the street or, or in a shelter or really hitting rock bottom. That pulls on the heartstrings. And you're, and you're human if that tugs on your heartstrings. You're 100% human. But unfortunately, you got to stay the course you got to stay tough that tough love aspect because when they finally do turn around and say okay fine i will go and get help because i want it but nobody else is going to support me in this they're just waiting for that that um, empathy to kick in because we're humans we, we we see these people especially when we have a relationship with them if they're our husband or brother or father or mother or child that's the part that makes it the hard part and that's the part that hurts. That digs through under all of our defenses. So resources wise, just find somebody who can support you in holding that boundary firm, 
Yeah. Well, let's go deep for a second because I was in that situation where I had to, with my daughter, detach with love and hold a boundary. And, um, and she, she ended up being killed in, in that lifestyle. And I know a lot of parents who have lost their children due to overdose lifestyle. And that's one of the things that goes through our mind is if I don't help them, they could die. Um, yeah. so I under, I was lucky I did, I did a family program. I, I got lots of help around it. Cause I, I knew that I had to protect myself, um, yeah. you know, put on your own oxygen mask, all that kind of stuff. But yeah. Totally. The, the, yeah. The guilt can be very strong, right? When we are parents and we are charged with the well-being of our children, because that's what we do as parents. Um, and I'm sure as you learned, right, there's choices that we make for our kids' benefits, and then there's choices that our kids make for their own, let's say, benefit. And if it's not benefiting them, and if they're adult children, it becomes very difficult for us to own their decision-making. And that's that part where that detachment comes in. And it's it's hard to say, like you said, put on your own oxygen mask, right? If the, the plane was crashing and and we put on our own oxygen mask and it took too long. And one of our loved ones who was maybe not able to do that perished by the time we were able to put on their oxygen mask, it would be difficult. But if we didn't put on our oxygen mask, we would both perish. Right. And those are those ways that we look at it is, is in absence of us, what would happen? Right. And that's a question that I often talk to clients and say, what would happen if you weren't around? Do you think that this would still happen? And that's where oftentimes that, that wise mind comes in and goes, Yes, it would probably still happen. And it would probably have happened sooner. That's one of those things that the love does keep people, like people do respond to the love, especially our loved ones. And it usually does help them. And there's often a huge struggle inside people struggling with substance abuse or addictions. And they, they're torn between their loved ones and they're torn between their addiction or whatever their drug of choice is. And it's internal turmoil. And often it is the loved ones that keep them alive, that keep them um as healthy as they are it might not seem like a great standard but keep them as healthy as they are um for as long as they do because in absence of that they would just spiral way faster and so just knowing you did the right thing knowing that you got to protect yourself oftentimes there are other kids right it's not just the one kid oftentimes there are others that still need love and attention and care and support and and so it's it's very easy to blame ourselves but um it's not something that it's something that we talk about, like releasing and letting go of and saying, I did the best I could. And that's that hard part. It takes away the 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 judgment. I did the best I could as opposed to I failed, which is which is a judgment call. I did the best I could given the circumstances. And that changes the way the brain conceptualizes the situation, comes at it much more from a self self-compassion perspective. It's hard for sure. It's hard. Yeah. And on kids too, that was the other thing that I wanted to talk to. I know in a, a lot of adult children of alcoholics that really struggle um, with almost PTSD symptoms and, and um, yes. And, and so to the children, to those, so those either the children that are still underage or adult children, it's very important to realize that the attachments that we create and generate in our lives as we grow up may not have been there. Um, usually alcoholic parents have been alcoholic for the whole life of the child, the whole lifetime of the child. So it's something that starts either before they are born or sometime in the early development, but it can develop later. The point is that 
the person that is the alcoholic is no longer able to be there for the child in the way that the child expects, right? Our child expect love and attention and support and boundaries and discipline. They expect all of this stuff from their parents in order to figure out how to grow. It develops their standard social responses. So I hurt myself, I cry, my parent comes, holds me, tells me it's okay, everything's going to be fine, smiles, right? We try and teach the children to get over difficult things with a positive attitude. A lot of those things might not be there when the when the parent is maybe suffering from an addiction or an alcohol like alcoholism or substance abuse because they may be out engaging in that lifestyle. They might be hungover. They might not be able to do that. And a lot of children have to then learn, learn to self-soothe. And some people get it right. And some people sometimes find maladaptive ways to self-soothe. And that's where we, I would recommend to those people who find that they're struggling, who have those, like you said, PTSD-like uh, symptoms to go seek help, go talk to a therapist because there are attachment wounds that are likely still pretty raw inside of them where they weren't able to be there at their at their sports games or their, even just to attend their basic emotional needs. And so we want to be able to redevelop that first, but there's going to be a lot of conflict about that. We love our parents, but we may hate them for being alcoholics. And those two, the love and the hate, don't sit well together. They don't conceptualize well in our brain. They, they exist, but they tend to be kept separately or one of them gets shut down. So you, the, the child might only feel love for the parent and then all of the anger and hate may be repressed causing all sorts of somatic issues with anxiety, depression, all sorts of other things. Or the opposite happens where only the hate or the anger rears, its, uh, rears itself and is accessible to the person and the love gets repressed. And that's difficult too, because that makes it, love to, makes it difficult to love others. When you repress love for your parents, that's really the place that you learn to love others is by what you witness your parents and your caregivers in the way that they love you or the person and each other so if they're not doing that that love gets repressed it's very difficult to maintain relationships later in life if you have never learned what true or proper care and love look like yeah i love attachment theory it changed my life <laughs> yeah. yeah it's the basis of what i do so okay well so now we're moving into treatment and i know yeah. that family is a very important part of the treatment process and we've talked about family programs, but anything to add there if you're going through the treatment process? For sure. So for the family members, the, the advice that I would give is that your loved one, person in treatment, whatever you want to call them, will struggle. 100%. I've been doing this. I've been in this business for a few years now. And it doesn't matter who you are, where you came from, what the substance is, what the drug of choice is, or the behavior of choice is resetting all of those neural pathways will come it may not be all the time but it will come with some difficult aspect and to know that your person in treatment or your loved one will struggle is something that i highly recommend that you keep in the back of your mind because they will try to or i say they their subconscious will rebel they'll say i hate treatment they're not treating me well here uh there's people doing drugs in the parking lot uh, the food, they're starving me, right? There will be all sorts of very dramatic language that comes out from a place that's most likely focused on trying to make change and support people through healthy, adaptive uh, lifestyles. The question that I would always ask or, or tell those parents to ask is, does that make sense? Does that, what your person in treatment is telling you, make sense for what you know about a bunch of medical professionals who are only trying to help 
your person, but also all the other people in that treatment center, wherever they are, go through what they need to do. So be a little bit skeptical about what comes out of your person in treatment's mouth when they talk to you on the phone or they Zoom with you or whatever is, and it, it could be the other side too. It could be, everything is amazing and I can leave. That'll be the other thing that we see here. I've, I've been here two weeks and I totally get it and I'm rocking it and, and I got all the counseling done and I totally understand my addiction. I'm ready to go home now, right? You don't need to waste your, the rest of your money because usually treatment's expensive. You, you can save all that money. I can come home now and I'm good. And so again, that little bit of skepticism. Okay, we'll a little bit more about it. Like, how does this go, right? Let's have a family call with the counselor to see that we can actually make a plan about that, right? Or it's horrible and the counselor sucks and they mistreat me. Okay, well, let's 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 talk about that a little bit more. Does that, that doesn't make sense to me. Explain, give me more details, right? And oftentimes the details will be the part that's lacking. Um, and that's where we want to just support them and say, I totally get it that this is hard. I totally get it that that's what you're experiencing. And maybe that's what you're feeling or hearing or seeing. Um, but it's it's likely not that way. These people here are, are here to support you and you just have to kind of give up that power and and believe that the system that they've created is there to support you. That's the hardest part for a lot of people in treatment is to give up that power. And you'll see it rear its head in all sorts of circumstances. They won't give me strawberry flavored toothpaste. Ridiculous things that you think, like as we talk, you and I, seem trivial but they will be those things that the power dynamic of that subconscious is exercising itself. I want strawberry colored toothpaste. I want vaping. Maybe vaping is not allowed. I want um, cannabis products. It's not a drug. It's legal. It's totally fine. I want it or I'm leaving. You'll see these, these power, these, these bids for power um, kind of spike in your conversations and just being able to say, all right, Let's just take that at face value and say that doesn't really make sense to me right now. Be skeptical, be supportive, and always loop that therapist back in and say, let's talk about it with your therapist. And then oftentimes the third person in the room story changes very quickly. Yeah. Yeah. That triangulation. And I know it was so heartbreaking. So from my work, because I've worked in numerous treatment centers and I would see residents come in beaten and broken and they will do anything eh? they're just they're so done and and the gloves are off they're out of the ring and then i see them two weeks later yep. <laughs> strutting around the treatment center i gotta get a, I gotta get a, a boyfriend or a girlfriend i gotta get a job i need some new clothes i you know it's just crazy to see that the the early recovery and and what we go through and yeah, that's the power of the subconscious and the subconscious will either make the person feel um, they'll dial the, the good knob to 11 and they'll be feeling amazing. And that'll be that way, that false sense of security that the subconscious tries to create to say, you're good, let's leave. And then once they leave, realize they're not actually good. And then previous or behavioral patterns can rear their ugly heads again. And then it's right back to square one. And so that's why we're often skeptical about the positive as well as the negative yeah yeah i know when i did my uh, family treatment program i learned a lot about that so so then moving on you've been sure. sober for a while and i and i know myself um the first couple of years i thought i've changed like look at me and then now i look back on that person and think wow 
she was still pretty selfish and self-absorbed and still doing all of these things, all of these old behaviors. So what uh, advice do you have for, for now your loved one's sober? Yeah. And in that case, support, I think support and encouragement. I think if somebody was to come to you during that early sobriety and say, you're still the same person, look at how selfish you are. That would be really demoralizing. And so we want to be much more compassionate because I don't know how you went through it and turned into the person that you are today, but something happened through your early and mid recovery that allowed you to get to where you are today. And it probably wasn't someone wagging their finger at you. I would expect, correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah, no, no. Yeah. And so that compassion and that love and that space, that's what we want to create for our loved ones. We want to say, great job. You've been sober X number of days, X number of months, X number of years. It doesn't matter. That's really hard. I applaud you for that, right? I'm glad uh, you're still working on yourself, right? That little subtle piece in there that says, you're not done, right? Recovery is not a thing that is in the past, right? A recovery is something that's active. It's something that happens every single day. Um, and right, AA talks about this, a day at a time, right? And you want to make sure that you do live it a day at a time because that relapse is only a day away, right? It takes one second to relapse. And uh, we want to make sure that we encourage our loved ones and we go, you're doing great. You're, you've improved so much and really highlighting the improvements, right? You're, you're, you're attending, um, you're doing great, right? You're attending your meetings, right? You're, you're showing up to uh, family events. Uh, you, before you never would show up and now you're showing up to half of them, right? That's an amazing thing. We love to see you around, right? That will further encourage them to show up that other 50% of the time because that positivity and that good relationship that they're building with you and others, that's the thing that's going to keep them healthy. That's going to insulate them from the relapse that's always sitting out here in the parking lot. That relapse, that idea of the the addiction, still doing push-ups in the parking lot is still there. We want to make sure that we acknowledge that it's there, not obviously very ob like focusedly or, or obviously, and we just be like, you're doing really great. I support you 100%, um, and let's keep keep moving forward. That's really all that I that I suggest to people, and just be on the lookout for for those markers that lead back to relapse. Um, any treatment center, any a good a good treatment center will create a relapse recovery plan and a relapse response plan. Right. So there's a there's the relapse recovery plan for what happens if somebody relapses. That for that's for that individual. And then there's the there's the uh, parent side of things or the loved one side of things. What are you gonna do if they relapse? Because relapse happens, right? We know that it happens. Um, and sometimes people need two or three tries at it before they can really get it. And But if we if we were to f fall off our bike the first time and never get back on our bike, we'd never learn how to bike. So we wanna make sure that we encourage that. We wanna make sure we have firm boundaries. We have an action plan because there'll be emotions. We also wanna make sure how am I gonna respond? What am I gonna do? What supports are gonna be available or not available should this person relapse? And that'll help both people in the relationship navigate what happens in a relapse. Yeah. Yeah. My husband and I both have long-term recovery and we still have a relapse plan. Should, should anything happen with either one of us, just that was part oh, of our, oh. that was part of our vows, part of our marriage that we needed to know what we were going to do. And that's amazing. Right. And that's supporting each other, but it's also keeping each other accountable and knowing what behaviors are leading to a relapse is critical, especially for couples like yourself or families, knowing that spending too much time on the couch or falling into online video games or 
more smoking or whatever. Everybody has different markers for their relapse, uh, their relapse markers, but knowing what that is and then knowing that there will be maybe not consequences, but actions that take place should that happen oftentimes can help people be like, oh, I'm getting I'm, I'm starting to get in a danger territory. I need some help. It helps both people or, or however many number of people are involved. I think that's amazing. Well, I thought this talk was amazing. Thank you. I mean, it's a topic that's near and dear to my heart. Um, but yeah. I just, oh, fam, my heart goes out to families. I mean, I because I've been on both sides. I've I've been in active addiction, and and I've had a, I've had a child in active addiction, and it's it's heartbreaking. But at the same yeah. time, though, people that go through that recovery process, I have seen just the most miraculous changes, and and see the humans that they become are are pretty amazing. Yeah, often those people that those people are always inside there, but they never get a chance to shine because the addiction or or whatever is in the way. And that's the part that unfortunately we interact with is that that addiction side of them. When that is able to to heal and grow, the person that's underneath shines through. And that's that part that you're describing is that lovely human being that's underneath that is great at art or math or music or speech or whatever gets to shine through and we get to see that growth and that's why uh, that's why I do what I do and I know that's why the people in my business do what we do because we do get to see those people come through and we do get this th those lives get saved that person may never get to see the light of day until they get to grow through that addiction yeah. and families Family members have the same opportunity to grow and change and tap into some of some of their own issues and and um percent yeah. yeah it's a it's a growth opportunity too because a person a person rarely gets to where they are in isolation and that's not to place blame on the family systems that are surrounding them but oftentimes we're in we're um, oblivious to the dynamics that develop within families. And so to learn about ourselves as a family member and say, oh, maybe I was feeding into a part of that with X, Y, or Z behavior or X, Y, or Z um, uh, speech patterns, I have a chance to relearn about myself and regrow as well so that I can help both myself and that person continue to grow. Because if uh, you've heard too, again, I'm, it's like the video of cliches, but if nothing changes, nothing changes, right? You can send someone to however long rehab you want. If they go right back to the same environment that they came from and those people that their loved ones or their support network hasn't changed a bit, their, their chances for recovery are very poor. So being able to grow as that recovery or that support network improves that person's chances of staying sober and healthy. Very true. Yeah. All right, well, thank you so much, Dan. No problem. And